0: This podcast is brought to you by Miriam Global Investors. Miriam is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing commitment to providing the space to perform.
1: Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, as the Tory leadership contest kicks off, who has the best shot at getting to the final two? And with Carrie Simmons, Boris's new partner, neatening him up, I also ask, what is the role of the politician's spouse? And last, cats! Are they ruthless killers posing an existential threat to wild birds? First up, at least 12 Tory MPs are running for the leadership contest with even more expected to declare. But the party will whittle them down to just two, who will then be put to the membership. So who will the final two be? And what will the coming weeks of the contest look like? In this week's cover, James Forsyth takes a look at the runners and riders and their chances. He joins me now together with Rob Wilson, former Tory MP who worked for Jeremy Hunt and was also a party whip. So James, how angry and bitter is this leadership contest going to get? I don't
2: think it's going to get that angry and bitter, but I think the stakes in this contest are incredibly... High, Because I think the Tory party is in some ways in worse shape, even though it's in government, it is in worse shape now than it is in 1997 in terms of it is at more existential risk. This is a question about whether the Tory party can survive. And I think, you know, the... Next Tory leader is either going to be remembered as the Prime Minister who takes Britain out of the EU or as the last Tory Prime Minister.
1: And Rob, you've got an eye on how the party works, you understand it very well. You're also a close friend of Jeremy Hunt. How do you think he's doing, firstly?
3: I think that uh, he has got off to a reasonable start. I think that there has been some confusion over what he thinks about the no deal as against the general election Balance that uh, you have to strike as a leadership candidate. And I think some people have interpreted that that he's taking no deal off the table, which I don't think he is. But he is making a clear play for the bulk of the Remain part of the party because I think he sees a need to shore that up because of all the numbers of other people coming in behind him who are just sort of snapping little bits off his, his... numbers. So I think that's probably the reason.
1: And James, it is difficult if you're an ex-Remainer to work out how to appeal to the the Brexiteer wing of the Conservative Party, not least because of the way in which Theresa May found herself having to resign.
2: Yeah, I, I I think in a way, Theresa May has made life much more difficult for any former Remainer in this contest because... In terms of the membership round, when it gets to them, they feel that they've seen this movie before. You know, they've seen the person who says, I voted Remain, but now I get it. Brexit means Brexit. And then they look at the situation that the party is currently in. I think Jeremy Hunt's problem is this. In the run-up to this contest in the last few months, Jeremy Hunt has moved to a position that made him more acceptable, I think, to the Tory membership. He was one of the cabinet ministers. who was willing to kind of entertain No Deal. And I think that cost him some support on the Remain side of the party. I think that's part of what has allowed the, the Matt Hancock candidacy and the Rory Stewart candidacy to, to get going. I mean, the problem with what Jeremy Hunt is now is he's not just been squeezed on that kind of idealistic Remain side. You know, why did you ever entertain No Deal? But on the other side, you've got Michael Gove making an argument that, look, only a Lever is going to be viable in the final round of this contest. So if you actually want to stop these candidates who sound gung-ho about no deal, you've got to vote for me. And I think if you look at, the, if you look at that, this is the problem for Jeremy Hunt, which is he's getting squeezed two ways on his side of a contest. You know, The, the, the kind of Gove pragmatic appeal and then the Hancock-Stewart, we never flirted with no deal appeal. And that, I think, is why Jeremy Hunt is having a slight stumble at the moment.
1: So, Rob, do you think it will be a lever versus a lever in the final two, or do you think MPs will end up picking one of each to send to the membership?
3: I think that it's going to be a representative from each camp, and I think it's likely to be Boris or Rob on on one hand, and I think it's likely to be Hunt or Gove on the other. I think all candidates at some stage are going to come under pressure, and Hunt's had his little bit of pressure, and you know you can argue whether he's got over that stumble or not. I would say he has, and uh, I think Gove will come under pressure at some point, and I think Hancock is beginning to come under a bit of pressure.
1: What what sort of pressure?
3: Well, I think that uh, Hancock is is failing to make a strong enough argument to the middle of the party about how he can get a deal with Europe and get it through Parliament and also not end up in a no-deal situation. So I think he's beginning to struggle with Brexit in the same way as everybody else that is going to be on the remain side of the argument. So all those that spotlight will go from candidate to candidate, and it's how you cope with that, how you bounce back, and also what else you do. So it's going to be very interesting to see as policy becomes more interesting as part of this whole process, what the policies are that each of the candidates brings out, and how radical they are, because... From what I've seen at the moment, there's very little radicalism in the policy set from Boris and from Rob, And yet they are the people you would expect it from.
1: James, do you agree with that, that Boris and Rob are playing it safe on domestic policy at the moment?
3: I wouldn't quite put it like that.
2: I, mean, I think Boris Johnson's aim is to kind of keep a low profile at the moment. He is trying to shore up his parliamentary numbers rather than... And he, look, one of his great assets politically is he just gets attention he doesn't need to go out and try and make news he just is news i think on Dom rob i think if anything you could argue he's actually been i mean in a quite a traditional way but too ambitious on the on the domestic policy front i mean the guy is committed to taking 5p off the basic rate of income tax in the next you know in the next 5 years but,
3: but that's all very old old politics but, old 1980s but, sort but of i politics. think you could argue
2: that jeremy hunt falls into the same camp which is you know doubling defence spending is another fairly trad Tory idea, I, I think it was one of the things. The big to my mind, the big domestic policy challenge for the Tories is how do you respond to the kind of Corbin critique of capitalism? And I think the Tory response has to be to try and revive the ownership society, you know, get the property owning democracy back going. That's where I think we haven't seen ideas so far. Because at the moment, you know, the ideas floating around in this contest are, as, as Rob was saying, they're all very transitory. you know, estimate very more money for the police for off the foreign aid budget, you know, income tax cuts, corporation tax cuts, more money for defence. There isn't a policy perspective where you start think, oh, that's an interesting idea. It, it's all fairly kind of headline stuff.
1: Rob, what do you expect the dividing lines to be once the party does move on from Brexit in this contest? If it manages to do that... I th-
3: I think one of the key things is one of the things James mentioned in his article and that is really how you defend capitalism how you recreate some sort of feeling that it can contribute to your family's wealth and getting on in life and I think that there is something developing, and I've certainly been thinking about this personally quite a lot, in customer-centred capitalism. And I think that this is responding to the whole sort of Corbyn, we're going to nationalise everything. I think there is a role where you've got monopolies, duopolies or cartels whereby the customer should get 10 to 15% of ownership so they share in the wealth of those companies. And you should do it through everything from water companies to energy companies, even into the banking sector and the the government should be fully behind how you get the spoils of success in all these different industries where there is no sharing of success really at the moment because it all goes to shareholders and in many cases very big shareholders so you need to get that out into a bit like the whole council house sales under thatcher you start sharing all that huge wealth amongst a much broader population and particularly amongst the customers of those companies
1: and james one of the other key themes of this leadership contest so far is trust it's not just about who you trust to deliver the best form of Brexit in terms of how Dominic Raab or Boris Johnson or Michael Gove voted or didn't vote on the various meaningful votes on Brexit. But it's also interpersonal trust. So Michael Gove betraying Boris in the last leadership contest, for instance, and then Michael Gove now arguing that you can't trust Boris to deliver Brexit because he doesn't pick up his phone. Who do Tory MPs have the, the hardest task of, of learning to trust again in this?
2: I think one of the big problems, actually, with no deal is the lack of trust in the Tory party, which is, there, there is no, I don't think there is any realistic way to get better terms out of the EU, not massively better terms, but marginally better terms, than to be prepared to put no deal on the table. But the problem is there's such a lack of trust in the Tory party that whenever anyone talks about putting no deal on the table people think that that means that they actively want to do it. That, you know. So if Boris Johnson says, well, I would be prepared to walk away, you know, Philip Hammond thinks that means he's going to walk away on day one. And, and that's, that's the problem, which is that you actually need... You know, I mean, this is one of the many ironies of this whole negotiation, that the EU have managed to keep 27 countries relatively united behind a common position, but the Tory party itself can't unite behind one position and i think that that lack of trust is what makes no deal so difficult to deal with because you actually what you need is is people to believe that the leader would would put it on the table but it genuinely would be their last resort but they they aren't they aren't going to do this kind of willy-nilly but i think that is the problem is that lack of trust is what is making this brexit debate and so I think, complicated i think that in the past. lack
3: of trust actually goes to the root of why Theresa may ended up being booted out it basically goes back to the fact she she kept changing things. She would agree things with David Davis or Dominic Raab, and then you'd find she'd agree something else with her civil servants. She'd do something different in the European negotiations. She'd switch to a checkers arrangement when she'd be going for a free trade deal. And you never quite knew what she was going to do and whether she was going to do what she said. And that permeated down through the Cabinet and into the Conservative MPs and out into the party. And that is goes back to what James was saying. There's a complete lack of trust running through the Conservative Party about who is going to deliver what is wanted. And what is wanted by the bulk of the Conservative Party is to come out of Europe, preferably on a good deal, but if you can't get a good deal, we should be out on a no deal. And that is what the Conservative Party wants, and that's what it's signed up to. And if it doesn't get it, it's going to disperse all sorts of other areas.
1: And just looking at the individual candidates, do you think Boris Johnson is managing to to win over MPs in those in those private chats that he's, that he's having?
3: I think there is definitely a move towards Boris, and there has been for several weeks, and the EU elections will have confirmed that. There are large numbers of Conservative MPs who are very worried about their marginal seats, and there are a lot of marginal seats uh, around this time, and they're thinking, who is the person... That can actually deliver those marginal seats and get me back into parliament and continue a, some form of Conservative government,
1: and that's Boris. And they Even though think he's got himself. And they, the and they
3: think it. They do think it's actually Boris, and that is why there has been, it hasn't been a stampede, but it has been a trickle towards him. And so, it should be enough if he plays his cards right and uh, and doesn't say too much and firms up. You know those he's got. It should be enough to get him into the final two.
1: James, are there any candidates who are actively putting people off when they're meeting up with them? Uh,
2: I don't think anyone's actively putting people off, but I think I think one of the things that is its contest is how crowded the field is. We've got twelve candidates, and so I was talking to someone involved in the practical organisations of hustings, you know, how long does your hustings have to be to get somewhere <laughs> with twelve candidates? And I think I mean that is interesting. I also think there's going to be a, a, an interesting dynamic in these hustings, which is to what extent. Do the other lesser known candidates try and turn their fire on Boris Johnson to get attention? That has definitely been a, a theme of this contest so far, but th- that is what's going on. I also think what will be interesting is that one of Boris Johnson's kind of plans is to essentially try and and say to the party, yes, I'm a Brexiteer, but I'm also a kind of One Nation Tory in inverted Commons on all these other issues, and basically try and surprise people by his positions on. Domestic policy. Now, I think it's slightly Panglossian to think that you could unify the Tory party on domestic policy at this moment in time. But, I mean, his strategy is to try and make himself more acceptable to more people. So even if people aren't going to vote for him, they say, well, I'm not going to walk out of the party because I actually agree with him on... Schools funding, or I actually agree with him on the NHS, or I agree with him on the economy. I think that that is what his plan is.
1: And Rob, finally, one of the candidates with perhaps the most attention-grabbing campaign so far has been Rory Stewart, who yes. is doing a sort of "Where's Wally? Where's Rory?" tour of the country from Kew Gardens to Wigan. Mm. Do you think that's working for him?
3: Oh yeah, without a doubt, he, he is getting an enormous amount of attention and enormous amount of media coverage. Is he
1: getting an enormous amount of parliamentary support though?
3: No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I never th- thought that uh, when he announced he wanted to be prime minister and he was going to run this time, then this was anything more than at best a place marker. Others have seen it as a, as a sort of he- an outrider for Gove. I think they've unkindly termed it suicide bomber. I think there is an element of him targeting Boris and wanting to take him out, and I, I do think that. Uh, He has been quite successful in framing some of the arguments around, uh, you know, the EU and Brexit. But I also think that his cause is a lost one and that he's not going to make any progress. I think the Roy
2: Stewart thing is fascinating about this lack of trust and no deal. Because when Boris Johnson came out and said what he said about leaving on October the 31st, Roy Stewart came out and said, well, I had a conversation with Boris and, and, and he's changed his mind. It's not that, it's that Boris is genuine belief is that by putting no deal on the table, he gets a better deal and so leaves with a deal. So it's not that he wants to leave with no deal and and that is, you see I thought in that exchange I thought you saw this lack of trust on this no deal question within in the Tory party. I, my personal view on Rory Stewart is all this idea that he's he's acting on behalf of some other candidate is rot because this is a guy who's not short on self-confidence. Someone who goes off, runs a province in Iraq after the occupation, walks across Afghanistan at the time of you know just after 9/11. And I think he sees himself as a as a kind of man of destiny figure well, and I, that I, this I, is his moment. And I and I think this is
3: I think he genuinely thinks that that he should be Prime Minister. I don't know if this is true, but I was told by somebody who knows uh, Rory Stewart that Rory has plotted each stage of his life with the objective of making it to Prime Minister at certain stages of his life. A bit like, I think, Michael Heseltine had uh, some similar idea about that. So I think that he does want to be Prime Minister. I just think that this particular run at it is an early run and it's a trial. And he's actually doing very interesting things and he's reaching out to groups of people that the Tories haven't uh, reached out to for some time. Membership of Kew
1: Gardens being (laughs) a key unreached demographic.
3: Going to to Wigan and uh, talking to trees. It's all very important stuff. But, I mean, he is making a different kind of play to the other candidates and it's very interesting for that reason. But I don't think it's going to be successful and it's not going to be effective.
1: Thanks, James and Rob. And to hear more from me and James on British politics, do tune in to our daily Coffeehouse Shots podcast. And this Saturday, we'll be hearing from Rory Stewart. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash shots. Now, it's not the first time that Boris Johnson has run for leadership. But this time, he's leaner, he's had a haircut, and, Lara Prendergast writes in this week's magazine, is even considering going vegan, all thanks to his new partner, 30-year-old Carrie Simmons. So what is the role of a politician's partner? Screenwriter Paula Milne explored this question in her shows The Politician's Wife and The Politician's Husband and joined me down the line. In the studio, I'm joined by Navenna Bridgen, who is married to a Tory MP and runs a lifestyle blog called The Wives of Westminster. So, Paula, what attracted you to writing about the world of politics and the stories of the spouses who are involved as well?
0: Well, on The Politician's Wife, so we're talking kind of mid, slightly late in that 90s. There was a plethora of um, sleaze scandals. I think we all remember David Meller and the family at the Garden Gate. And I remember looking at that picture of of him and his family and his wife and thinking how hard it must be for her to forgive him and then thinking, but what if she didn't, but pretended that she did? (laughs) Particularly then, the wives were kind of hostage to their husband's party as well as to the marriage, as it were. You know, and they were part of the campaign in a sense. You know, when there was an election and so forth.
1: And Navena, do you recognise that, or do you think things have changed? And well, that... I
4: think there is a lot of that present even today. But I'm actually, I set up this platform to claim my own voice. And, you know, yes, I'm a spouse. And as a political spouse, I have different maybe experience if I was married to someone else. But I think it's changed in a way that, uh, and or, or maybe I'm trying to change it uh, in a way that I'm speaking right now. I'm claiming my own right to share my life experience. And also I speak about social social context and, you know, how politics affects us. Mm. Obviously, I'm breaking some political convention. And I, I didn't know how what reaction is gonna cause, you know, and how much wave this is gonna make in Westminster society, I would say, a bubble. So it's very interesting to like compare what was happening then and what's happening now. And uh, I think I'm setting up something new for the next generations.
1: And tell us how your life differs from, as you say, somebody who'd married a, a civilian, a non-politician.
4: Well, in many ways, first, uh, if you look at the positive side, you meet a lot of different people. You hear uh, about real stories, real problems. That's that's one thing. The other thing is that, uh, you know, everyone has some perception what the political spouse should be. And the moment you want to step out of the shadow of your husband, then it's like, oh, lay low. That's what I was getting messages. Lay low, uh, keep it light, uh, uh, hire a, P- a PR guru. You know, it's, it's like all this... Um, fabrication, you know, and I think that's uh Paula was saying, that this perfect picture of the family life, airbrushed husband with the, the, the like, steppered wife and that kind of uh stereotype that's present you know that needs to change that's fake and that hasn't you know? changed that's still a problem i think it's still present i mean it's present in political campaigns all over the world but i mean we live in a different world today in the reality culture you know in the like the way we communicate the way we consume the information and so on so i think uh, we need to uh, like change this conversation in the sense of like um Speaking truthfully, you know, and honestly about what's happening really in our lives. Sorry, maybe like I'm jumping from uh, topic to topic, but we need to speak about how uh, unfriendly, family unfriendly is actually being uh, with politicians. And why is that? Long hours, schedules, overscheduled, you know, like hard work. People are maybe not aware how much work is put into like campaigning, canvassing, all sorts of like events and obviously as a wife, you, uh, you need to be part to some extent of all that. It's a role that it's given, you, don't even, you didn't even ask. But also I wanted to change the conversation in a sense of like how much I can be myself and the political spouse, but I'm an opera singer, I have different identities. And in that sense, like, I think that that's, that's important that we uh, start speaking about problems, not just like picture perfect.
1: Paula, do you think the role has changed since the 90s, where, as you say, you had wives at the, uh, the, the the family gate standing by their husbands? I mean, if nothing else, we have more women in Parliament rather than just as spouses to male politicians. So we, we now have husbands as I, I think it's a well. generational
0: change. I think it's changed over sort of two decades. I mean, we've had Cherry Blair, who's a lawyer, Samantha Cameron... I think she's a creative director, Ed Miliband's wife, wasn't she a lawyer as well, and Sarah Brown, public relations and so forth. And and so I think what's happened is obviously the whole thing of equality and, and, and feminism and so forth has played a part. But the other thing too is I, I guess that women like that and not least the sort of grand dame of them more Michelle Barmer are vote winners for the for a new female generation of voters, who see career women, and not the sort of Dosa, Mary William Mary Wilson and and, and Norman Major, you know, uh, paraded out, you know, for special occasions like elections and so forth, you know, and I and I do think it's changed, but but there's still a sort of um, disconnect. I think that perhaps some of the older generation still bring the wives out to do all the family values that we referred to before. But I think times are changing, if albeit slowly.
1: Naveena, do you think that Carrie Simmons, who is Boris Johnson's other half, is uh, is going to have the, the kind of influence on him as a politician that, that Lara Prendergast in her piece suggests that she could?
4: Well, I mean, if she's doing some uh, positive influence on, uh, on her boyfriend, that's positive. But uh, I think the answer that we need, if we talk really about... Change. I think we, the answer that we need to ask is: Are we going to talk about the real, genuine, inside kind of internal change, or is, is it just, as I said, like picture perfect, airbrushed image, good haircut, or, Making or him losing lose weight. exactly? So, of course, the spouse is influencing the, the politician, but we cannot change anyone really you know like the wife that's a that's a delusion that women think that they can change someone or the 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 man and it, it's failed you know so many times through history so that's that's not the way forward <laughs> so i think you need to like of course influence your partner but it's about the politician about his values morals what he stands for political agenda and all these topics something else i want to say there was although we have
0: the example, as it were, of, you know, Nick Clegg's wife, Jerry Blair and so forth that we've covered before, they still tend in the a lot of the tabloid media and whatever to be judged by their appearance and what they wear and whether they do charity work and so forth, you know. So I think that that is still um, a problem to overcome. And as, as regards, you know, uh, what would happen now, I think More increasingly, to go back to my point about the modern career woman wife being a vote winner, and as the politicians themselves get younger, I think they see that too. So I think in a more nuanced way, the political wife is arguably still a hostage to the fortunes of the party and their husband. We'll see see how that plays out in the forthcoming weeks. Thanks, Paula and Nevena.
5: Hello, I'm Sam Lee, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books we've had in recent months from the thriller writer lee child to the historian peter Frankopan. we've had deborah lipstadt on anti-semitism judith carr on the mog books and wendy cope on her wonderful poetry we hope there's something there for everyone and if you think there might be all you need to do is search for spectator books on the itunes store or whichever your podcast provider is and sign up to get a weekly
1: dose of spectator books conversation And last, does it make sense for vegans to own cats? Even putting aside the problem of vegan diets for animals, cats are also ruthless killers, Mary Wakefield argues in this week's issue. Songbird Survival say they post an existential threat to many wild birds. And Mary asks, why not impose an Australian-style cat curfew? She joins me now, together with cat lover and investigative journalist James Ball. So Mary... In your column this week, you don't come across as the world's greatest fan of cats. Why is that?
6: That's absolutely true as well. I'm not the world's greatest fan of cats. I don't actually like them very much, you know, as as animals, but that's not the point. The point is really just that they do, outdoor cats certainly do um, a really severe amount of damage to kind of wild birds and songbirds and that sort of thing. To the extent that experts, if you trust experts, say that songbird populations are in quite serious decline because of cats. And in fact, that's not really my point. My point is that just that some of the most rational and upright people in the world are vegan cat owners. And on the one hand, they're walking around with, you know, we must save the planet, placards and t-shirts. On the other hand, they've got cats at home. And I don't think it's consistent to both be a vegan and have a cat. So I was really trying to point out that I guess everyone's a hypocrite. And maybe if everyone acknowledges that we're all bloody hypocrites, we can all talk more kind of fairly and freely about things
1: i have to admit that i am a hypocrite because i have about five different bird feeders in my back garden and two cats yeah and you see your
6: cats looking like dinner's coming as you put them
1: well they're not that bright they they sit there and meow excitedly at the birds so the birds have quite a good early warning system but I had set a great deal of store by the claim by the RSPB that they don't actually kill that many birds and it's only ones that were going to die anyway. And you have destroyed that in your piece.
6: Well, I hope I've destroyed that in my piece. I mean, I think that's a great example of you, you read and take on board the information you want to that fits your thesis, don't you? And I do it with everything. I've done it with the cats, probably. But in fact, most of the other expert organisations, like something called Songbird Survival, um, say that they think cats are doing great damage. And in fact, there wouldn't be a cat curfew in Australia... And there wouldn't be this serious conversation going on in America where there are also cat curfews if it wasn't for the fact that they are doing great damage. But every individual cat owner would say, well, my cat actually just doesn't like birds or is too slow or fat to catch them. Or, But it can't be the case that everyone's cat is doing no damage. Otherwise, songbirds wouldn't be declining like this.
1: So, James Ball, you have two cats. Are your cats, like other people's children, different to all the others?
5: Uh, no, my cats are terrible, selfish little pricks, to be honest. It's just... Again, like your own children, I quite like them despite it. But I do feel like I should sort of stand up for cats a bit, just in a general sense, because they're too stupid to stand up for themselves. They do catch a relatively large amount of birds, but it's mainly because there's a lot of cats. Yeah, Um, that's certainly true. Cats are pretty useless when it comes to catching birds in any major sense. The The big study everyone cites when they're talking about cats catching birds is actually 22 years old. Mm. And they surveyed 500 households with 700 cats and asked them to keep a diary for four months of how much their cats caught. Now, obviously, people whose cats didn't really bother, never caught birds and stuff, dropped out. So they think this is an overcount. But a cat that goes out catches about eight birds a year. Which ends up adding up to cats taking about fifty million birds a year, which sounds like this huge calamitous number, but bird populations are pretty stable. Catching a bird every six weeks isn't what's going
6: to get some it. Some bird populations are quite stable, but there's been rapid decline if you're to believe the songbird survival people. Rapid decline in 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 lots in some songbirds which are facing extinction. So, so,
5: so I mean, the really interesting thing is people say stop keeping cats or shut cats indoors if yeah. you want to save birds. If you really, really want to save birds, shut farmers indoors. But, um, no, that's not, It's but, genuinely the okay. big, the big well, I mean, threat to bird population, and I can cite you the ONS and the RSPB. I know, I've seen... The, I've seen well, the um, RSPB, as we
6: say, has a sort of um, vested much, interest yeah. in... At least, I mean, how do you prove it? But they definitely have a vested interest in not upsetting cat owners, given the amount of, you know...
5: Money they, money get, they get from get these from,
6: that's very human. I mean, to what to you love birds and animals, so you give money to the RSPB. You love birds and animals, so you have cats. But it's so. I. I mean,
5: I don't know about individual bird populations. What I do know is overall bird populations in the UK are really stable from 1970 to 2017. But, means, but there doing might be an okay. awful lot of
6: pigeons. I mean, that doesn't I mean, make any it's, sense it's, to me.
5: It's true, well, and it is also though. It is the sort of wild bird species that live in towns and cities that are doing best water populations doing fine it's sort of it is the sort of country birds that are having a hardest and, time and this well. is an interesting
1: point isn't it mary because some of the birds whose populations have crashed the most so the curlew the lapwing and so on they're arable birds that rely on farmland for their ground nesting yes. and you say in your piece that you're not sure that farmers are really as backward as cat owners are.
6: I'm taking all my information from Songbird Survival here, which is a reputable organisation. They say that the area of land under countryside stewardship is growing. There's 7, 7.2 million hectares of UK land now managed to benefit wildlife. Farmers have been massively incentivised to, you know, put back hedgerows and encourage the sort of plant life and what have you that birds like. And yet the numbers aren't improving. And the thing, the reason they think this this is going on is to a certain extent cats feral cats but also pests like badgers corvids mink foxes and that feeds into another issue you know if, do we have the stomach to let farmers shoot crows and shoot pests to ensure songbird survival which is a whole other other sort of issue so cats aren't entirely to blame but um
5: it's i mean i find the the sort of vegan angle on all of this quite interesting because i think as you sort of suggested does a strict vegan have well, a strict vegan has no business whatsoever keeping a cat. But sort of You the agree whole, with that? Well no, the whole thesis of strict veganism is not to interfere with animals' regular behaviour. So under strict veganism, plants that require you to transport bees to pollinate them don't qualify. So for a very strict vegan, something like an avocado isn't vegan because they can't be naturally pollinated. Right, You've got to keep and transport and farm I see what you mean. So it's everything that would be sustaining a- And so it's all about not interfering with that. So pet ownership for a strict vegan is, 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 is a big absolutely in, a no-no. Yeah. But then if you are a slightly sort of milder vegan who wants pets, stopping them behaving as they normally would would is similarly be a no-no. I suppose
6: and that's what I'm more interested in in a way is... But I mean no one has
5: any business keeping a cat on a vegan diet either, which
6: yeah. uh, I well, think Well there's this whole debate about whether it's humane to give your cat vegan or, you know, feline or whatever, to give your cat vegan Let, food. Let's talk about some
1: ways in which we could reduce the, the the bird death toll as a result of cats. So you've looked at curfews in your There's
6: piece. cat curfews. I mean, really also I just think if they weren't doing a lot of damage they wouldn't have bothered with these extremely unpopular Cat curfews and lock up your cat in Canberra and that sort of thing. So, so what do, what what happens in Australia? In Australia, cats- in Australia, there are cat curfews all over the place. where so I think you have to lock them up, at, you know, night or whatever. But also in certain cities, there are you just cannot. It is illegal. You'll final fined if your cat is seen outside so, at all. Yeah, um, even in your own garden. I think or you can have a caged area, but if they can get out of the garden onto the street, then then you're fined because they've found that they were you know decimating the some indigenous mammals and birds so, so it's,
5: it's a terrifically mean thing to do to a nocturnal animal don't, though. You, don't you
6: think that? so exactly to but
5: curfew them so i mean the interesting one is there's actually quite good surveys on a really moderate thing which is at the risk of sounding like a cat centrist um, I, I, there you are like some that. quite sort of there are some they're called bird be safe collars. I've seen those, and, and they're not a bell, because I've never seen a cat that doesn't go immediately furious if you put a bell yeah, around yeah. his neck. They're just quite brightly coloured, daft-looking collars. I'm
6: all for humiliating cats as yeah, well, so I mean, I'm, I'm up for that. They look, <laughs> if you've seen a dog with one yeah. of those um, <laughs> bitey collars on and how sheepish they look, The big lampshade. <laughs> oh, yes. A cat with one of those things on has the same sort of look of weary... Well, cats weary, take themselves
5: so know, seriously. It's we of, can
6: definitely agree yeah seems, all you know, cats just have those big...
5: On. so they work so they they don't stop cats killing birds entirely yeah. but they roughly half the birds killed per cat
1: and I, is that because d- the cat is so busy feeling I, <laughs> sorry for itself and staring at itself yeah. in the mirror going my god it i can't go out won't like let this. any other cat in the neighborhood Dad. Not self-imposed place. curfew yeah. Yeah. so we think the solution here cat is binge- not to give cats a curfew but just to make them afraid to leave the house exactly yeah. social embarrassment Thanks Mary and James, and that's it for this week. Do pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this podcast, as well as an interview with Dominic Raab and an art special with Quentin Tarantino. You can also send us your thoughts on this podcast to podcast at spectator.co.uk. We've had lots of lovely feedback on our coffee house shots podcast from people who think that Katie Balls should be prime minister and from people who secretly listen to us whilst scaffolding so just email podcast at spectator.co.uk thanks for listening and do join us again next week
0: This podcast is brought to you by Miriam Global Investors. Miriam is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing commitment to providing the space to perform.